Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, whose ongoing spirit for us as his Pentecost people continues to move in and with us and all of creation. Amen. Listen once more to the rather star-struck praise of the psalmist who leads us in worship again this morning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Those of you who have your Bibles open to this Psalm 8, you'll note that it is somewhat bookended, if you will, by exclamation points in verse 1 and again at the end of verse 8. As one of my farmer friends from Volga would say, I thank God for wow, that boisterous exclamation point when there's nothing left to say. However, the psalmist just can't contain himself. He can't stop there. He goes on in praise. And how amazing, when we think about it, that this confession of faith that has such a cosmic sweep to it comes from someone around the year 1000 B.C., out in that desert land of Israel, the rocky soil. And so we might ask ourselves, how is it that he can have this confidence in saying, in all the earth, this cosmic sweep? Well, think about it. Why is this so striking? Well, he'd never, probably never seen a beautiful snow-capped fjord. He'd never heard the trumpeting of an elephant in the Serengeti or the jungles of Africa. He'd never experienced the calving of an iceberg along the coast of Alaska. So how could he confess, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? The reason, because the psalmist was lifted by the wonder of the witness of his forebears in the faith. Those who had pointed and borne witness to the God who acts in history. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. The God of Moses and the Exodus event. The God who had spoken through the prophets. But most of all, deep down, the psalmist knew God's name as revealed in Scripture, the name proclaimed, who by a simple word creates the reality of which the Lord speaks. And so right out of the chute, knowing the Torah, the Scripture in Genesis 1.1, the psalmist uses this language, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This amazing majesty and power of God, as St. Francis and Bonaventure observed, is reflected in what they called the vestiges or the footprints or the very fingerprints of God in creation, everywhere. And so as we continue in Genesis 1 and verse 14, 
And God said, let there be light in the firmaments of the heavens. And it was so. Or if we look further into verse 20, and God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of loving creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the firmament of the heavens. And it was so. And God saw that it was very good. And then in the desert land of Israel, the night begins to fall and to enfold the psalmist. Camp is made, the camels now kneeling and blinking in the swirling sand, the, the young released to their mothers, and it's dark all round. Oh, look at the stars. Oh, look up at the sky. Look at the stars. The stars. So writes the 19th century poet Gerard Manley Hopkins in his poem, God's Grandeur. Look to the heavens. This is a word I think that's rather prophetic for our time that's become something of a flat earth society again, one that's something of a flat-screened society. But the psalmist continues, and he looks up in wonder and says, when I consider the heavens, notice there that it's cast in the plural form. For in the psalmist's day, there is more than one heaven. But above all the heavens is God, who sits upon his throne, who is the creator of all things visible and invisible. And the singer of Israel continues there in verse 3. When I look at thy heavens, O Lord, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast established. My friends, how long has it been? How long has it been since you've gone out into your backyard in the evening and just stopped and pondered the awe and the wonder with Van Gogh of that starry, starry night? I think it's one of the most wonderful experiences for a parent or a grandparent in getting a small child to see, for example, the Big Dipper. Children's eyes just go everywhere, and you try to focus them, and you say, now, can you see those four stars that form that cu cup and what looks kind of like a handle with those other three stars? And your son or daughter says, I hear a bird. <laughs> Always that attention deficit. And you say, no, no, look, look, follow my finger. Look at that. There it is. Watch my finger. Way out there. Then that final epiphany, and they say, oh, yeah, I see it. My friends, this is so important at our time that we share the wonder and mystery and awe of God's creation so that they might be stretched in their imagination, that their minds might be opened to move them beyond whatever to wow. Hmm? And so the psalmist, when I consider the moon and stars, who we are, O oh Lord, that you would think so much of us we're so small in comparison. Such a grand expanse, and here we are among one 
billion stars just in our Milky Way galaxy alone. It's easy to become overwhelmed by it. And I remember as a child, probably around four years old or so, and I looked at my mom one evening. We were out at her home place on the dairy farm in southern Wisconsin. I said, wow, isn't that kind of scary? We just seem so, so small. And my mom said, yes, it is very humbling. But Johnny, you need to know that you are a part of this whole creation of God. Yes, God made this vast universe, but God also has made you. And it's all of a piece. Now, if that's not moving from law to gospel, I don't know what is. What a relief to know that all of it hangs together in God. But to look at the moon and the stars and know that there are other boys and girls looking at the same Big Dipper, that same Milky Way wishing on a star, the same stars looking at the same moon. My friends, teach your children that and show them that the moon and the stars speak of the wonder of God's majesty. Say to them something like, just think, just think about it, that these stars are also being looked at by children in China, in Africa, in Peru, maybe even up in North Dakota. They're a little closer. And they're seeing the same thing as you. And they're wishing the same thing. And they live under the same starry canopy of God's love for them. You're not alone. The moon and the stars, they go on in their courses every day. We can count on it. We can measure it. We can compass it. We can chart it. Whatever the century, the country. We know exactly where every star and all of the moons will be because God has ordained it. But we're so self-centered. We think that we have everything nailed down. We think that we're in control. We think that we're at the center of it all, at the center of the solar system. And so we need, in our time and over and over again, a Copernican revolution for our sinful self that always sees ourselves at the center of things. And when God says, I give you dominion, some people think it means gobble the land. You own it. Soil the streams. You own them. Darken the air. It's yours. Some folks think this way. Others think it means to just accommodate, accumulate. Others never think about the fact that the more they have, the less somebody else has. And something that really struck me yesterday that I'd never heard about before on Minnesota Public Radio, actually it was on Friday afternoon, they were saying how it is that for many years now, the United States has been shipping our garbage, particularly our plastics, to China and Malaysia, dumping it on others, but not realizing that we're all interconnected. 
in this place called earth? What does it mean to have dominion? To just grab and hoard and throw it away? Do we think that we're going to live forever? But Scripture tells us in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So what does it mean to be a steward of creation? I want you to think about this carefully. What we own, we owe. What we own that has been given us in dominion to steward is always owed to God's first love and grace and creation for us. Now, when I consider the moon and stars that God has made, why does God pay so much attention, says the psalmist again? But we're so mixed up, small-minded, ornery, cocky, temporary. We're finite people with infinite passions on a finite planet. The moon, the stars, however, forever. As for me, says the psalmist, I'm just a blip on the screen. There was a time I didn't exist. There will be a time that I won't. And between the wince and the wither, how am I to lead my life? Where do I get a sense of identity in all the enormity of eternity? And so the psalmist draws upon the witness of Genesis again. Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us, and there's an allusion to the Trinity, let us make humankind in our image, made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. When God made the platypus, God must have laughed and said, it is good. And also with the trees, the squirrels, and every living thing. But it wasn't enough, so God finally said, I'm going to make, I'm going to make something very special in my image. And I'm going to make that something so that when people look at it, they're going to say, holy cow. Or if they look deeper, holy trinity. And I was pondering this again last night, and especially when Pastor Jeff was sharing the children's story this morning. There's a tradition in the Jewish faith called the Kabbalah, where it speaks about how it is that we are within the womb of God. And for us as Christians, we understand that in a Trinitarian form. Think about it. How many primary colors do we have? Three. What is the strongest architectural or geometric figure? Triangle. How do we measure human gestation? Trimesters. How do we read the flow of a story or a book, but with a beginning and a middle and an end, so within the life of God? Worship is a way of seeing the world in the light of God. I know too often we don't act like it, this matter of being created in the image of God. You take the expression, you made us, O Lord, but little less than you, than angels. But then hold that up against the daily newspaper, and it just doesn't fit. Let a newborn, left a newborn in the ditch.
hit a pedestrian and don't even stop. Take people's money that was supposed to go to Medicare. Doesn't fit. I know. But there's once in a while. And I want to conclude with a once in a while story by a master storyteller, sage, extraordinaire, a dear friend to many of us here at First Lutheran, the late Pastor Mark Churstead. Mark shared with me a number of years ago how when he was a pastor up in International Falls, Minnesota, way up in the North Woods, it was summertime for vacation Bible school. And he was assigned one day to speak about creation with children on a day trip, taking them out into the North Woods. And he said that after about just two hours, he was already tapped out with ideas. And so he said, guys, what I want you to do is to go out into the woods, find something that reminds you of God, and when I whistle, come back. So they did this. Mark whistled. They came back. And the first person was a little girl as they huddled up together, and she had this little flower, this gorgeous little flower. And Mark said, well, how does this remind you of God? And she said, well, it's perfect. It's beautifully shaped. It's colorful. And you know, Pastor Mark, I think God's a woman. Beautiful, perfect. Mark smiled and he said, well, that's good. And then a little boy came up and he said, well, I have these huckleberries. And Mark asked, well, how do these huckleberries remind you of God? And he said, well, God provides for us. God is good. He feeds us and all living creatures, even the bears. And Mark said he was glad that there wasn't one of those that he had brought back with him. And then finally, there's a little fellow who was kind of rough and tumble, known for getting into fights and being a pistol, kind of a mean character. His name was Jack. And here is that once in a while time. He said, Jack, what is it that you have? And he was holding the hand of his little sister who was in kindergarten. What did you bring back, Jack? And he answered, my sister. So what does this tell you about God? Asked Mark. And little Jack said, I'm, I'm wondering. And that wonder is exactly the point. This mean little guy recognized there wasn't a thing in the forest that told him much more about God as his little sister. That's it. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh, look at the stars. Yes, eternity awaits us at the crossways of God's starry heavens and causes us this day to be lifted up in knowing that there is nothing about or beyond the eternity of God's creative reach or touch. But also know that God is a down-to-earth God the one who has made us and has met us under a singular star, born in a musty manger and hung out on the crossways of our humanity in Christ Jesus, making known that you are dearly loved by God, that you are fully forgiven by God, and that you are held in Christ's 
hands securely forever. It's a gospel message written not only in the stars, but in pierced hands. This closing witness from a psalmist in our own time, the American poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning, from her poem, Aurora Lee. The touch of the eternal reaches into every one of our lives and moves through and beyond to thrill the fringes of the mountains and the hills. For the earth is crammed with heaven and every bush aflame with the presence of God. And only they who see this wonder take off their shoes. And those who don't just sit around and pluck blackberries. My friends, tonight, let's take off our shoes, dance with the Trinity, and look up into the starry wonder, the starry wonder of God's creation. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.